There are a lot of ideas about what a church is and what a church is not. There are a lot of churches out there that people love for all kinds of different reasons. Uh, some it's for the, the beautiful music that they produce. Uh, some it's, it's the diversity of the programs. They just, have, they just meet our needs in so many different ways. Some have incredible facilities. Others have awesome podcasts or video resources or events or great names for themselves. All kinds of reasons to love church. And there's, you know what, there's a boatload of resources out there, uh, videos and training materials that will help a church grow and thrive uh, and become more effective at what they do, uh, go where they want to go, pack more people into the, the buildings. But here in Acts chapter 2, we see church in its raw form. Uh, we see a church in its, its unvarnished state. It had no programs, had very little organization, no carefully thought out strategies, and not much in the way of resources either. In fact, I don't even know if they had clean bathrooms or bathrooms at all. Uh, but this is where they're at. Would church become more than what we see here in the book of Acts? Well, sure. Are all of those programs and all of those events and all of those org charts and buildings and killer beats a bad thing? Well, not necessarily. A church can be more than what we see here in the book of Acts. But I think if there's one thing we need to grab onto today and hear loud and clear, it's that church cannot be less. In fact, if we see a church that's bursting at the seams, tons of people attending, has a campus that can rival those, those finest university campuses out there, if it puts on productions that, that give Hollywood a run for its money, but fails to be about what the early church was about, then I think there's reason to question whether or not the people in that church or the leaders leading that church really have the Spirit of God in them. And so what are the essentials of a church? That's what we're talking about this morning. Turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 42 to 47 this morning. Would you stand with me as we read from God's word? It's Acts, chapter 2, 42 to 47, and it says this, continuing on from last week. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were gathered together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Essential elements of a church. We see it here in Acts chapter 2, and it's good. The first essential that we see here is that the church, a real church, is made up of genuine believers. Genuine believers. If we look all the way back at verse 37, several verses ago, there's no confusion as to who these people are here. It says in verse 37, when they heard these words, they were cut to the heart. They were hearing Peter's words, remember? And they said to Peter, 
and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and, and for all who are far off, meaning even the Gentiles out there, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many wor words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his words were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So the last time we met together, we were talking about how the Holy Spirit empowered that once fearful, impetuous, unstable fisherman named Peter, at, at great risk to himself, to stand up and proclaim the word of God to thousands who were listening. And people from all around, all kinds of nationalities had gathered together in Jerusalem to worship and to celebrate the day of Pentecost. All at once they were interrupted though. 120 disciples all of a sudden start spontaneously speaking out and declaring the great and mighty works of God. And they're not just declaring the works of God, they're declaring it in all sorts of different languages. And people are going, I think that's my language I'm hearing there. They're interrupted by that. And then immediately after, a man named Peter gets up and starts to talk. And that's when the real trouble begins <laughs> Because Peter declares to them, essentially, you're living in the last days right now. And there's a last day, a final day that's coming. And it may not be so good for you. And Peter essentially says, you murdered the Messiah that God sent. <laughs> Do you think you're still in good standing with him? <laughs> and that's where they're cut to the heart. And they say, what, what do we do here? Peter, what's the answer? And Peter gives them that answer, and instantaneously, the number of disciples just explodes. And you got to ask, was this for real? I mean, we've heard of revival meetings before, right? I mean, maybe some of us have been to Harvest Crusade, and you've seen an invitation to accept Christ given, and people, hundreds of people start getting up out of their seats and walking down onto the field to pray a prayer and confess faith in Jesus Christ. Is that for real? Do these people really know what they're doing? It's very possible they might be making a profession of faith, though, and not really have faith to begin with. Maybe they're just going down on the field just to hang out near the pitcher's mound. I've never seen it from this perspective before. The proof is in what happens next, right? That's where the evidence comes in. Are they now God's spirit-indwelled people, or are they just going through the motions you know, like the soils Jesus talked about? You remember those? It's just a matter of time before they reveal themselves to be uh, what, what type of soil they actually are. They, the kind of soil that, that hears the word of God and, and then have it either choked up by the cares of the world or, or maybe it's burned up by trials that come into their life or maybe it's snatched up by lies of the devil that tell them, you know, all this, all this faith stuff, all this, all this word of God stuff, that was just wishful thinking. You know, if you're like me, you've, you've seen this kind of thing happen a few times. As a youth pastor, I saw this happen a lot. 
one day you'd have kids in your youth group, and they'd be singing praises to God, and they'd be crying tears and all of that, and then the next day they're, well, they're nowhere to be found, never to be seen again. But something different happens here in Acts chapter 2. Something real was going on. Something powerful had happened. A change had taken place, and these people were going to show evidence of that change. With the Holy Spirit making his home inside of them, they're now fused together as a people, a chosen people, right? A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. They were now not just a collection of, of, of random people. They were now the church and a new identity that was there. Do you recall what Peter wrote to the church in Corinth? He said, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews and Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink one spirit. And so when the spirit of God came, they were united together with the rest of believers. They're now Christ's body the physical representation of Christ here on this earth because Christ's spirit is actually inside of them. And here in Acts 2, 42 to 47, we get a glimpse of what the Holy Spirit now leads them to do. Notice in verse 42, it says, they devoted themselves. That's a crucial statement right there. It's not just anybody that Luke is writing to here. It, it, it's those people. It's the ones who received the gospel that Peter was delivering and were baptized as an outward sign of their repentance. They're, they're turning around and, and their faith now in Jesus Christ. The they there, that's believers. It's not the general crowd. It's not those who were searching. It's not people who are just stepping through the doors and checking out the church, what's going on in here. It's those who had crossed the line from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light as they acknowledge and turn from their sin and look up to Jesus as the one who took their punishment upon himself, paid for it at the cross, and then rose victoriously from the grave. The apostles knew who these people were. Because they were right there baptizing them, hearing their professions of faith. And you can bet, as they were baptizing them, they had the clicker, and they're counting these people. It says about 3,000 here. I have no doubt that they knew the exact number. They knew who was part of this body. This is the they. And notice the difference that it made. They didn't just pray a prayer and then, okay, okay, we'll see you later and get on with the rest of our lives. No, they went from being enemies of Christ to being devoted to him and his people, to each other. And the, go the gospel message, it didn't fall on flat, hard, grounded hearts and ears. No, it was heard and it penetrated deep. And it took root within their hearts. That's what we see happening here. Jesus said in, in John 8, he said, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. 
A few chapters later in John 15, he talks again about the importance of abiding in him. That is, staying connected to him. As a branch needs to be connected to its, its main trunk or its vine to, to actually grow. That's what these new believers are doing here. They didn't just claim to believe. They didn't just profess to have some type of spiritual experience. They weren't merely a flash in the pan. No, they were devoted and were abiding. They were all in. And I have no doubt that if you came up to them and asked one of them, you know, what, what, what group are you a part of here? Who, who, who are you guys? They would say, yeah, over there. Those people, I, I'm with them. I, I'm, I'm one of them. I'm one of the people of the way, which is one of the ways the early church referred to themselves. I belong here. Is that you? Are you all in? Have you, have you crossed that line of faith, place your trust in Jesus, and told other believers, yeah, I'm, I'm here. I'm a part of you. I'm with you. I'm the church. Baptism and membership are, are two ways that we make our faith known to each other and actually allow each other to validate our faith. If you've taken that step and you've acknowledged Christ before others through baptism, you, you've let the church know, yeah, I, I'm here. That's basically what you're doing. I don't, I don't know why it's so hard for us, uh, in, myself included, when I was baptized. I was so nervous to go down into that water. Everybody's looking at me. But it's why am I embarrassed? I'm just saying, I, I'm with you. I'm a part of you. Christ, the work that he did in you, he do, did in me. And the same thing when it comes to membership. So many, so many of us get so stuck up on, well, it's, it's this, this extra biblical thing we're signing on the dotted line. No, 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 you're just saying church, local church, I'm, I'm just here. I'm, I'm, I belong to you. I'm with you, and I want you to watch my life. As I, I live here with you and among you, you watch me and you see, do you, do you see Christ's likeness in me? And if you see me, me, me veering off in one direction, come grab me. Because you know what, this stuff we're talking about here, this stuff really matters. I don't want to be on the outside looking in. When it comes to eternity with Christ and with you, I want to be with you. So here, here I am, I want to be a part of this thing. The first essential element of a church is that it's made up of believers, and it's made up of believers only. We can have guests, and it's good. In fact, if you're here with us as a guest this morning, we're so glad that you are here. But that baptism and that membership is so important. They're those tools that help everyone know that you actually belong here, and they allow Everyone to, to watch your life and speak into your life and we grow up in Christ together. This is church made up of genuine believers. This is what our church needs to be. Secondly, a real church is made up of believers who are all about, who are devoted to God's word. Verse 42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. These new Christians knew that their, their foundation for their existence and the key for their survival in this world that was not their home now, uh, a world where uh, truth is exchanged for lies everywhere you look, that had to be rooted in truth. We're not going to survive unless we're rooted in truth. You know, when you get your driver's license, it's a, it's a beautiful day. 
Uh, and some of you haven't gotten it yet, uh, and some of you had it taken away. But when you, when you get it, it, it's a great thing because it means so much freedom. When I got that thing at 17 and a half, and don't ask me why it was 17 and a half, but it was 17 and a half, and I got that driver's license, and I was out there, baby. It was great. What a great feeling. But I couldn't get out there and, and just throw the rule book away. All those things that I had to study and remember, that, that goofy little book that I had to, to pass that test, I, I had to hold on to that stuff in my brain. If I threw the rule book out there, it wasn't going to go well. Either I was going to find myself with massive tickets, get my license taken away, or get in an accident, maybe kill myself, maybe get other kill, others killed as well. You know, it's, it's, it's God's word that brings his people into the believing community. It, it's, it's by hearing the word of God that faith comes, right? But it's also God's word that establishes them further and, f- and firmly for the days ahead. Jesus said, I will show you what he is like. He, he's like a, a, a man building a house. And then he gives this illustration of a man who builds a house on a firm foundation. And when the, the waves come and the wind blows and all of this stuff happens to it, it stands firm. That's like the person that hears my words, he says, and obeys them. A person who doesn't do that, well, they're like building their house on the sand. It's, it's, it just doesn't go well. So many people try to build their, their lives on things other than God's truth. And the shocking thing is, churches do this as well. They, they build their, their, their empires on, on books and growth strategies and business models and sermons that are built on cultural norms or popular opinion or expert advice or, or personal anecdotes and, and promise to make your lives better. And they appear sometimes to be incredibly successful. And you see people who are incredibly successful. You might go, wow, that's a successful person. Wow, that's a successful church. It's really rocking and rolling. Ah, wish we could be like that. But because of the poor foundation, their lives are, or their ministries like skyscrapers built on sand just topple. You know, Hosea 4, 6, God says this, my people are destroyed For lack of knowledge. They're destroyed for lack of knowledge. And I think, I, I think I've seen some of that. Not so much here. But I've seen people destroyed because they didn't know God's word. And they were tossed back and forth like a reed in the wind. And they found themselves someplace that was so destructive. One of the evidences that a person knows Christ is that they highly value God's word. They need it. It's, it's almost like actual food to them, like Peter talked about in, in 1 Peter 2. They're, they're like newborn infants. He says, long for pure spiritual milk that by it, you may grow up into salvation. He's talking about God's word. That's what was happening in this first church. The members knew that God's word was life-giving. They knew that they needed more and more of it. That through it, they were reminded continually of who they were. 
By dwelling on it, they were drawn to a grander understanding of who God is. By searching it, they were able to make sense of their world and discover how to walk through it. By tossing it around in their brains, they were able to grow up in their faith as the Spirit used that word and developed them. And by relying upon it, they were better equipped to get on with that mission that they had been given and persevere through those trials and those persecutions that were on their way. Are you in a church that is devoted to God's word? Is your family devoted to God's word? Are you personally devoted to God's word? I sure hope so. If you're not, I'm not sure what kind of longevity you're going to have. And what's more, I'm not sure what it says about the reality of your own faith. Is it real? Or did, did you simply pray a prayer and, and think you were going to get your, your, your policy or your ticket and then move on? This is an essential characteristic of the real church and the real people of God. There's more. They were devoted to fellowship, it says. That's verse uh, 42. And, and notice it wasn't just fellowship in general here. It wasn't that they were just devoted to uh, being generally social people uh, or that they were extroverts and we just got, we just got to get out there. We got to be in that scene. We got to be in the know. We got to be hanging out with people. No, they were devoted to the fellowship, it says. There's a definite article there in the Greek and that means that it was the 3,000 that they were devoted to. It was their fellow believers that they were devoted to and maybe you've encountered or maybe you've... Uh, Maybe you've been one of those people that has been hurt, maybe in the church. I've known several people have come up to me and they've said, Jared, uh, I love Jesus. I just can't stand the people in the church <laughs> that show up to the church. I just can't, I can't do it. And I think, what a tragedy. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying it's a tragedy because they, they've been hurt. It, it, Lord knows, it, it, it hurt is part of this world because we're all sinful people and everybody gets hurt. And it's not simply a tragedy because they, they, they don't feel like they can hang out with God's people as if it's not a welcome place. It's a tragedy because they've come to believe something that has never been nor ever will be okay with Jesus. For genuine believers, this just is not an option. Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And to the one who said that he, all authority on heaven and on earth is now given to me, you better listen to what he says, and especially at the commandments that he gives. Just as I have loved you, you are also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my, my disciples if you have love for one another. This is a defining characteristic here. It's not a friendly suggestion. Devotion to the fellowship that gathering of the people that Jesus bled and died for, and for whom now the Spirit of God dwells inside, and who, and who are gathered together uh, with him for all eternity, this is not an elective. This is not extra credit. 
This is by design. It's commanded. This is God's will for the life of every believer. And someone says, well, I I am a part of the church. I'm a part of the universal church. Perhaps you've heard of it. Yes, I have been united to all people from all times who are in Christ. You know, I know that there's going to come a day when I will be with my forever family, and I'm ready for that. I can't wait for that, because when I am finally with my forever family, I know that sanctification is going to be completed, and there are going to be no people left who are going to be there to hurt me, to irritate me, to frustrate me. Yeah, I am all in. I am ready to go for that forever family when we finally get there, when that work that Christ began inside of me has been completed. Yes. I just can't be a part of the local church right now where all these sinful people are and they're, they're currently being transformed, sanctified. And I, 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 No, no, no. They're not ready for me and I'm not ready for them. And to that, the word of God says, love one another. It says again, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Live in harmony with one another. That command would not be there if there was not the chance for disharmony. (laughs) Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. For the glory of God. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I think we we, we need to work on this. (laughs) Serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Listen to the words that that Paul writes here in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You have this great calling, right? You've been caught up by the grace of Jesus Christ. This is an amazing thing. Called into his family, into the kingdom of light. What is the manner worthy that we need to walk? He says, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager? Sometimes it's hard. He says, this is how you walk in a manner worthy. You come toward the people of God. You're devoted to that fellowship. And the Bible goes on and on and on. talks about believers existing together. It goes in Ephesians 4.25 and verse 32. In Ephesians 5.21, Philippians 2.3, Colossians 3.9, Colossians 3.13, Colossians 3.16, 1 Thessalonians 4.9, You get the idea. The 3,000 were taking these things seriously, so much so that they were even doing whatever it took to take care of the body, take care of that 3,000 people. That's a lot of people to take care of. It says, all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing proceeds to all as any had need. Contrary to what some people think, this is not communism here. They weren't pooling everything together and just distributing it evenly out to everybody because that that really doesn't give anyone incentive to do anything in life. No, they they were willfully, sacrificially giving what they had because they saw needs out there and they wanted to meet those needs. Being Christ like to one another, that's what was happening in the church. 
And you see very, very quickly, this is, this is not about attending a service. This is about being the church together. What an awesome thing this is. How are you supposed to do any of this if you're not devoted to one another and faithfully showing up to be with each other? You, you, you can't. You just can't. I'm sorry, but cyber church and second life church and metaverse church are simply turning on a live stream. It just doesn't cut it. You can't do this. You can't be the church. And so we got to say, unless it's physically impossible for you to be with the body of believers, or, or it's just a brief season where you got some ailment that is preventing you from being there, aside from certain circumstances, you need to be with the body of believers. That's what the writer of Hebrews tells us. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. He who promises faithful, let us consider how to stir one another. There's another one another. To love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. All the more as you see the day approaching. Gather together. Stir one another up to be the people that Christ saved you to be. Encourage each other. And do this even, even more. More and more and more. Be more devoted to it as you see the day drawing near. We talked about that day just last week. These disciples in the early church, they knew they were in the last days. They also knew that a day was coming. Just like Jesus said in, in, in the parable of, of um, oh, the, 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 um, the bridesmaids <laughs> and the oil in their lamps. Be ready. Be ready for that day because it is coming. Friends, that day is closer for us now than it was for them closer. That means that we, even more so, should be devoted to the fellowship. Meeting together, building each other up, cheering each other on to persevere, to be God's people in these dark days. Genuine believers are devoted to the fellowship of other believers in the church body. They love the people that the Savior loves. They invest in the people that their Savior gave his life for. They enjoy seeing Christ represented, actively transforming, and even working through their fellow believers. And they want to be there for it, there to see it. And they feel at home as they gather with the local representation of their forever family. You got devotion to God's truth. You got devotion to each other. They were also committed to remembering what Christ had, has, had done. They were devoted to communion. They devoted themselves to apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread. Breaking of bread is a reference to the Lord's Supper. It's a reference to communion. It's about gathering together as the people of God and remembering the work of Christ on the cross. Because this is central, isn't it? You can't move on and leave this thing behind as if it doesn't need to be remembered anymore. If a church that does not regularly come to the cross, it becomes nothing more than just a club for people who want to be nice. I don't want to be part of that club. One of the evidences of people who have genuine relationship with Christ is that they're taking communion and they're remembering the cross and making it a priority. Verse 46 says, day by day, 
attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. That's, that's a reference to communion right there. They received their food with gladness and generous hearts. Why would they be glad in taking communion? Isn't communion supposed to be the solemn thing where everyone kind of gets low and gets quiet and uh, you know, we're all kind of, uh, kind of down reflecting on the cross? Well, maybe at first, maybe when you first approach the Lord's table because you're there and you're recognizing why you're there. <laughs> You're there because you need to be there. You're examining your heart and you're seeing that there's still so much more that screams out loud, you need Jesus. But as you take the bread and you take the juice, you're reminded he paid it all. He took all those sins at the cross. <laughs> Cleanses you from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. His spirit is in you even now, continuing that refining work, transforming you into Christ-likeness. Is that something to celebrate? Yeah. One last thing. They were devoted to prayer. End of verse 42. You know, before he left, Jesus told his disciples, this is John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. These early Christians, they took that, those words seriously. Some of them had been with Jesus. They had walked with him. They had watched the incredible things that God was doing. And he's gone now. And Jesus said, ask anything in my name and, and, and I, I will do it. The Father, that the Father may be glorified. And so they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, moving forward, Jesus isn't here. Jesus told us to pray. We're going to pray. And we're going to pray all the time because we know that we need it. It was one thing to walk around with Jesus. That made us a little nervous at times. But now he's not, I don't see him here. And yet I'm still called to walk. And what's more, I'm called to be witnesses in a world that put Jesus to death I need Jesus, and I need to pray right now. These people were praying people. I like what William Barclay writes. These early Christians knew that they could not meet life in their own strength and that they did not need to do so. They always spoke to God before they spoke with men. They always went into God before they went out to the world. They could meet the problems of life because they had first met God. That's good, isn't it? Prayer is essential. Incidentally, there's a, there's a new book for, for us parents out there. It's called uh, In Jesus' Name, I Pray. And it's a tool to help our children pray the way Jesus taught us to pray, to pray in Jesus' name, to not pray uh, just based on uh, everything that we want. I want my day to go well. I want this to happen. I want that to happen. It's praying in line with God's will. That's what we need to teach our kids, especially, this is really timely, coming up to the crazy Christmas wish list season, right? This is a great opportunity to teach our children what it means to pray in Jesus' name. We'll have some out there on the Welcome Center in a couple weeks. I encourage you to check them out. When you see a church that is not devoted to prayer, it says something about them. 
says something about their faith, says something about their reliance on God. Pray continually, the Bible tells us. Be devoted to prayer. This is what genuine Christians do as they call upon God, their one and only hope, their resource, their source of strength. As they gather together time and time again to praise and thank them, they demonstrate that a change has happened in here. They are not the same anymore. They're not drawing strength and they're not looking for answers in the world around them or through any of its resources. They're looking to where they know the resources come from. They come from God, and they demonstrate that they're truly God's people when they do so. So here they were, about 3,000. They're all about his word. They're all about the fellowship. They're all about the table that points them to be centered on Jesus Christ. They're all about calling on their king in prayer. This is church. This, This is what it is. Let's strip away all of the confusing stuff that is out there that tells you this is the church you want to go to. Some of that stuff is really good, but if it doesn't have these things, probably not the church. Welcome to the church. And someone might be tempted to to say, you know, that's just way too simplistic. You need a lot, lot more. Yeah, yeah, maybe so. But I can tell you this, it can't be less These are the essentials. You may have a church that is not really the church at all if they don't have these things because you don't know if the people there are believers. You you, you may have a church where people claim to love God and, and be all about Jesus but don't even really know who God is because they're not looking at his word. They might, they might hold it and they don't use it. You may have a church building, but not the church because the people don't really have the spirit of Christ dwelling within them, gathering them together as God's people. Maybe it's just something like a a self-help group. It makes them feel good to be in a socially positive environment. You may have a church where people point to this or that as the powerful work of God, but if they're not on their knees praying together, then how do you even know that it's God who's working here? Or the direction you're even going is the direction that he wants you to go. But the church here in Acts is different. This is the real deal. This is, they they were about the essentials. And and just look quickly at the results. They were awestruck. Awe came upon every soul. Many, many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. It wasn't because of the buildings that they were building. It wasn't because of the epic sounds that were coming from their worship team. It was because of the supernatural things that were happening in their midst. Things that should not happen except for God working within them. Lives were being transformed here. It was amazing. They must have looked around at some of those 3,000 and go, You're here? Excuse me? I'm not sure I'm in the right place now. And then they watch them and they go, oh my goodness, wow, God is good. Lives were being transformed. Miracles were being witnessed. Radically different and better culture was being formed that exposed all the rot and decay out there of the surrounding culture. God was working in and through them and building a community like no other. You know, a lot of people have tried to build these utopiesque type communities. They have all sorts of different plans for how they're going to make that happen. But you can't have it 
unless you've got Christ-surrendered and Spirit-empowered hearts. Can't have it. Sorry. You can try to legislate morality. We should be actively pursuing that good bills are passed, that our world looks more and more like the kingdom of light. Remember a while back we showed the, the, the kingdoms at war with each other. And we said when you come to Christ, you are now on a different plane. It's a vertical plane. You're there pulling people up out of darkness as you proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. And you're also working to establish uh, uh, a kingdom here that, that lines up with God's word. It's never going to be that until Christ returns. But you know what? God calls us to be influences here where we're living in the right here and now. And so we're here pointing upward in everything. Jesus said, all authority is given to me. Everything belongs to him. Business, politics, you name it, the arts, it's all his and his people should be redeeming it and pulling it toward the kingdom of light. They were in awe. Total awe. They knew God was working. Secondly, God was glorified. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. That's worship described there. They're filled with joy, and it came gushing out as they were praising their awesome God. Barclay writes this. He says, it was a happy church. <laughs> Gladness was there because God was working within them. As they, they had their faith strengthened and came to better understand what God was doing through the pages of his word. As they cared for each other and saw God working through one another, as they continually came back to the communion table and were reminded of the work that Christ had done, as they called upon the Lord time and time again in prayer and watched him work, they're completely blown away and praising God. Not only did they see the good that was happening there, but you know what? It became apparent to people on the outside as well. Unbelievers were impressed. Verse 47 says, they were having favor with all people. They weren't held up in a cave somewhere or keeping their faith private. No, they're out there worshiping. Where are they worshiping? They're out there in the temple still. They're Christians and they're still going to the temple. They're working at their jobs. They're going to the market. Everywhere they went, they're being witnesses that Christ had called them and had called them to be that witness. Like Jesus told them in, five, in Matthew 5.16, they were letting their light shine. Hide it under a bushel? No. Let that light shine. And they were giving glory to God as they did so and leading even people who were not believers to go, something's going on there. Church, no matter how dark things get, we need to refuse to bow the knee to those who would insist that we keep our faith private. And we need to obediently and boldly and brilliantly shine the light of Christ. As they leaned into being the genuine people of God, they were awestruck. God was glorified. Unbelievers were impressed. Finally, God added to their number. 
And the Lord added to the number day by day those who were being saved. Notice this wasn't transfer growth here. This isn't the uh, sheep stealing in the middle of the night. Hey, come to our church. Yeah, you're not satisfied. You're discontented over there. Yeah, they're not doing this or they're not doing that. Hey, come over here. This is not that. This is conversion growth. This is what we want. Conversion growth. As they obediently did what God called them to do, he was calling new believers to faith in Christ. And they were brought into the church. Friends, I don't know about you, but this is exactly the church that I'm praying that we will be. A family of genuine believers devoted to God's word, to the fellowship, to communion, to prayer. People who come in in all colors, shapes, and sizes, ages and stages, different uh, levels of status in the community, different means, but who have been radically transformed by Jesus Christ and are unshakably rooted in his kingdom. And as we are, may God fill us with that sense of awe. May he glorify himself as we sing his praises. May he allow a watching world to stand dumbfounded and add to our number those who are being saved. Would you pray with me? Father, we are your people. You've called us to yourself. You've joined us together. May we be about the things that truly matter. May you work powerfully among us and through us for your glory and the good of your people. We love you. We thank you. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.